Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trek in Time. This is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. We've had some people expressing some confusion over what that means recently. Some people are having aha moments. So I just want to really clarify what we're doing here. We're taking a look at all of Star Trek in chronological order, according to what would be in the Star Trek universe. So we've started with Enterprise, as that is the, those are the stories that are the oldest within the Star Trek universe, even though they're not the oldest episodes made. We're going to be moving forward chronologically. So after Enterprise, which will take us approximately 19 years to get through, (laughs) we're going to go on to Discovery. (laughs) So obviously we're not looking at doing these shows in order of production, but we are going to be talking about them in chronological order. And we're also going to be talking about things that were going on when they were produced. So we're going to be taking a look at the world we live in and how it corresponds with the world of the chronological episodes and how they reflect each other, or maybe how they don't. We'll be taking deeper dives into either the episodes or the era that they were made in at the time of broadcast. So you're wondering, that's a lot of we that I just dropped on you. Who the we hell this are we? and we that, who are we? Yes. Me, Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi, and I write some picture books for younger readers. And with me is my brother, Matthew. Say hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Matt is very literal. He's also the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, you can directly support us. This would be outside of just doing what you're doing now, happily listening while driving your car or maybe washing the dishes or mowing your lawn. By the way, you missed a spot. You can go to trekintime.show. There's a button there that will allow you to throw quarters at us. We appreciate any kind of support you're able to give. Matt, we have some listener comments I think that would be worth sharing. Do you want to share those thoughts with us? Yeah, we have a couple of comments. One from Harshal uh, Shah. I think that's how you say it. Mm -hmm. Um, Honestly, you guys should do two or more episodes a week because according to the interwebs, there are over 800 episodes of Trek across 39 seasons and more to come. At one episode a week, it will take about 15 and a half years as they add new series and episodes. Yes. yes. Sean and I have talked about this off and on. Harshal, but, this yes. is a labor of love for us, Harshal. We are, we are strapping in for the long haul. And the fact that I will be a retiree by the time we finish, I'm, I'm okay with that. But yes, 15.5 years, that's that's three ongoing missions. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> the, there's another comment from David uh, Mark. I don't know how to say your last name. I'm going to butcher it. I think it. it's Marquardt. Marquardt. Okay, yeah, there you go. David Marquardt. Trekassants. Love it and agree. Although I would have to say that I'm loving Lower Decks more than anything else right now. I've seen Next Generation at least 10 times and DS9 at least seven. I love all Trek some more than others. I still have not watched Lower Decks and I keep having people telling me it's a great show and I need to check it out. Yeah, I'm I'm very intrigued by it, but it's it's one of those things. I mean, time being what it is, I just haven't found the time to carve out an opportunity to watch it yet. But I keep hearing such positive things. People are saying the second season now is better than the first. 
And I'm also very intrigued by the brand new show, which is clearly geared, I think, toward a younger audience, but mm-hmm. the one that involves uh, Captain Janeway as a, as a part of the show. And I think that's another one that I'm I'm hoping to be able to carve out some hours and spend a couple of hours watching some of these new animated series especially considering I was a fan of the original animated series that was on in the early seventies. I think those, as far as Trek hold up just as well as some of the original series episodes themselves. So I am intrigued by what they're doing, especially with it being a comedy. So for today, we're going to be talking about the next episode in our rewatch. This is the episode desert crossing. Matt, do you want to give us a synopsis of this? Sure. Captain Archer and Commander Tucker are invited to a desert planet by a man named Zobral, only to discover that he is a, quote, terrorist with ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. As far as synopses go, I don't know how you could edit this synopsis to be more accurate without making it about four times as long, which then turns yes. into a summary of the episode overall. Yes. So we'll leave it at that. Terrorist in quotes should be a, a signal to everybody. Yes. So this episode was directed by David Strayton. And David Strayton is somebody with, as we're often seeing, with a lot of good credits on his resume. His directorial debut was the classic Nickelodeon series, Wienerville. I will admit, have not seen Wienerville. (laughs) But some of his other television credits include The Secret World of Alex Mack, Dark Angel, Fastlane, The Immortal, Jake 2.0, Heroes, Dollhouse, Enterprise, of course, Standoff, Life, Charmed, Sex, Love, and Secrets, House MD, Mercy, Detroit, 187, Angel, Las Vegas, Defying Gravity, Chaos, The Cape, White Collar, Nikita, The Firm, The Finder, (laughs) Fringe, Bates Motel, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Magnum P.I., MacGyver, Stargirl, and The Good Doctor. There are some good shows in there. There are some very good shows in there. There are some shows in there that I forgot existed. There are some shows in there that I've never heard of. But some of the shows that I have not seen but have, have, are find very intriguing are things like Bates Motel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the listing, including Magnum P.I. and MacGyver, those have to be the new versions of those they shows. Those can't yes. be the original ones. No because way. if he had a 20-year gap between yes. doing an episode of Magnum P.I. and MacGyver then 20 years later, finally got back into directing to direct Dark Angel, that wouldn't make any sense. No. So these are the newer shows. One of the shows I know you're familiar with, Matt, and you've talked to me about it before was Stargirl. Stargirl, I'm having a lot of fun with that show. It's not yeah. great, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah. And Fringe, I don't know if anybody hasn't watched Fringe, definitely check that show out. It's a great sci-fi show. Yeah. I find it very interesting that this list includes a little bit of everything. There's some Mm -hmm. action aspect, there's thriller aspect, there's mystery aspect, there's sci-fi, there's superheroes, there's just straight up drama. Mm -hmm. There's some stuff for younger viewers, there's stuff for adult audiences. I think it's a demonstration that uh, Mr. Strayton has an an extremely wide-ranging talent to be able to plug into all of these different types of shows Mm -hmm. and be able to work on them uh, successfully. This story was developed by Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, of course. They've been involved in every episode, basically, this season. Along with Andre Bormanis, and the teleplay was also by Bormanis. And this episode aired on, surprise, surprise, everybody, hold on, 
May 8th, 2002. If you're having a moment of deja vu, it's because the last episode was also on May 8th, 2002. This was a double bill. Back to back trek. Living the dream. <laughs> Decades before the streaming era. They were saying, let's do, put two episodes. Let's just let our audience watch one episode of the next. And you know what the result was? A drop off in viewership. <laughs> this episode had 4.6 million viewers, which was fewer than the five point plus that it had for the first episode, which was Fallen Hero. So the eight to nine audience was stronger than the nine to 10 audience. Apparently, that might mean something about the age of the viewer having to go to bed. But. <laughs> Or people not liking Fallen Hero. Or people not liking (laughs) Fallen Hero, which I think is unfortunate because I think I thought Fallen Hero was a very strong episode, and I think that this is a strong episode. And this episode will get into some of the nitty gritty details of the world that we're living in at the time of broadcast in interesting ways. Just a reminder. From last week's episode to this week's episode, we're looking at the same song, the same movie, the same TV shows. So what are we talking about? Pink, Don't Let Me Get Me, still number one song. Spider-Man, still killing it at the theaters. ER, yes, that ER, still raking in 28 million viewers. And in the news, it's the same news from last week. Suicide bombings in Tel Aviv. Prime Minister Sharon cutting short a U.S. visit, splits over Palestinian statehood, and Arafat's role is unresolved. That is the one that I think those last ones are the key headlines that I think are what we're seeing in this episode. This episode revolving around a group of people on a planet who've been treated because of a caste system unfairly, And they have advocated for changes to how they're being treated by their governing bodies. They've finally gotten legal acknowledgement, but that legal acknowledgement is not being enforced. They are still being treated like second-class citizens. And now, as a result, they feel their only option is to use force. And therefore, they have become terrorists. This episode couldn't have been clearer about taking something from the world that was being lived at that time yes. and turning it into sci-fi. It's a little on the nose. I was, I was going to say, when you said you thought this episode was good, I'm going to be contrary to you. I did not like this episode that much. It wasn't bad, but I just didn't like it. And part of the reason I didn't like it was it was just like the somebody was smashing that on the nose button for per mention's entire episode of we had September 11th. Here's a very Middle Eastern, you know, conflict like the Gaza Strip and Israel. It's like it was very of that world issues going on. And it was just so, uh, it was blatantly obvious. And I got to, one of the big nitpicks of people who don't like Star Trek is all the aliens look like people with, you know, foam things. This one, strange alien new species with chin tattoos. Yeah. It's like that was the <laughs> only thing about them that was alien was they yeah. had chin tattoos. All of this was so on the nose. Their their costuming was very Middle Eastern looking. The fact that it was a desert planet, it was like it was playing into all these kind of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. I just did, I just thought it was you could you could use the same complaints about some of the original series, like yes. you know the episode with the black and white face, that whole thing. There was some stuff that was just way too on the nose, and this yeah. for me uh, 
was like hitting a wrong key in a song of just like, ah, and it kind of set me off for the entire episode. I never got over the fact of how on the nose this episode was, even though there was some good acting, there was some good dialogue and there was some Mm -hmm. good tension. It's like there were good aspects of it, but just the fact that it was so on the nose, oh boy. (laughs) For me, what, for me, what worked was it felt like it held my attention in a way Mm -hmm. that it didn't struggle to do unlike some of the episodes, maybe 10 episodes ago. Okay. Middle of the season, first season Enterprise was a slog at times. Some of the episodes really dragged. They didn't know where to tighten things up. This episode, I think, falls into that zone that we've had now several episodes in a row where it feels, again, A plot and B plot are intimately entwined. And it felt like everything was informing everything that was, that was going on. It mm-hmm. didn't feel like there was anything extraneous and nobody felt like they were being misused. I did have a couple of problems with the fact that this episode to me seemed like a strange rehash inverting the episode Shuttle Pod 1. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Here's a survival story. These two men are trapped together in a shuttle pod. They will not be able to go anywhere else. They are going to only be in the shuttle pod and they are slowly freezing to death. What do we do if we totally turn that on its head? Here's two men trying to survive in a desert. It's blistering heat that they're wandering across. They have nothing with them to help them survive. It effectively felt like, okay, it's another survival duo. But where the first one gathered strength by having two opposing viewpoints trying to figure out how do we survive in the circumstance. This one took the person who was all about survival in the first one and made him despondent and quick to give up in this one. Mm -hmm. I didn't like Tripp's characterization. It was, it didn't feel like it was the same guy from Shuttlepod 1 who was clearly about there are things we can do even if it's pointless. There are things we should do in order to cross those T's, dot those I's, do everything we can to make our situation survivable. He was doing all of that in Shuttlepod 1, but in this circumstance, he's almost out of the gate like, well, what are we going to do? We're dead. Right. And I agree with you that there are elements in this that are so on the nose as to be distracting. And, and let's take a, a quick step back to, to enter into the plot. Where are we? We're... On February 12th, 2152, interesting note, they are still talking about going to Ryza. <laughs> this is just three days after the episode that preceded it. So this is almost like a weird two-parter yeah. with the, the previous episode. So literally just three days after, they have just barely escaped getting shot out of the sky, being pursued by alien vessels. Just three days after that, the captain and the chief engineer get trapped on a desert planet that they then have to survive. Mm -hmm. You would think they would be so exhausted by this point. So the Enterprise is on course for Risa. They're trying to once again take shore leave, but then they get a distress call. And Archer's response to the distressed call is a not reluctant response, but just a, well, this is what we're here for. We're here to try and help. Like that kind of we don't know who's calling for help, but we should. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that it's the pilot, Zabral, who is in a very small craft that is effectively breaking down in space. 
So they take it aboard and Trip works on the ship and is able to to repair it enough to allow the the man to fly back to his home. Zabral is very gruff, very forceful in his approach. Zabral is also played by Clancy Brown mm-hmm. in what is a nice guest appearance by a man whose resume is about as long as your arm and your leg put together. The man has been been in everything. everything. He's played every kind of character, everything from Lex Luthor in the animated DC series to playing John McNamara in a movie about U.S. history in the Cold War era. It's his ability to do all of this convincingly while also having a voice that sounds like it's coming from his toes. Yes. Yes. He is a very recognizable voice. He's a very recognizable actor, but he's always believable. And Mm -hmm. whether it's him playing a bad guy in Highlander or him playing Zabral, the, the wayward, uh, in trouble pilot who needs the enterprise's help He's always believable. He's very charismatic and he's easy to root for. So Zabral basically guilts Archer into coming to visit his home. And they, Archer and Trip, go to visit Zabral's home without knowing. This is, this is a point of a leap in logic for me where they just happily go without knowing anything about anything. They're yep. like... Like, yeah, let's go down to this planet and let's visit with these people. And other than being force-fed food that they don't understand and then respond to questionably and playing lacrosse, let's be honest, they play lacrosse. Can we just... You were saying that you thought this episode did a good job of like holding your interest. I will say that the, the game scene where they play this game that's just look cross with a glowing ball <laughs> man chin tattoos um it went on way too long that scene yeah. was slow motion lubed up you know bare-chested archer and trip playing this game and it was just going on it's like okay we get it they're, they're playing this game can we can we move this along can we can we get the plot going again it takes like three minutes for the entire scene when it could have been 30 seconds <laughs> I think that there was a reason for that. And I think that, I think that there was a reason for that. And I also think that there was an opportunity missed. And I think it was missed because of probably cost concerns, trying to Mm -hmm. keep the expense of the episode down. Anytime you have an actor on a show, say a line, they immediately get bumped up to a higher level of, of pay. And if they have enough lines, they get bumped up yet again. So I think that that's one of the things here that's that was obvious to me. Everything is spoken basically by Zabral. He's the only person on the planet, effectively, who does any talking. Mm-hmm. I think that the I think that the game was intended to show what good, just wholesome, almost like almost a familial atmosphere this community of people have to mm-hmm. demonstrate quickly that they they play what is a difficult and physically demanding game but they do it with a charm and an amusement and it's 
these people take these humans into their game and don't make it about doing anything to them that's overly aggressive in any way that they're not doing it to themselves. And I think that that is supposed to be the intention of showing three minutes of the gameplay is that Archer and Trip do not feel out of their element. They are having fun. They feel mm-hmm. included in a very obvious and an authentic way. And I think it would have been I think it would have been benefited if there had been two more of Zabral's uh, community members who were speaking to them. If there had been a couple of moments of other people welcoming them in in the yes. same way, there is a moment which you knew it was coming. I saw it coming a full 30 seconds before it even could be set up when Archer gives a backslap to one of the other competitors. And it's yeah. obvious that it is directed from the perspective of you don't feel unwelcome or even in any kind of danger whatsoever that you right. feel completely at home with these people. And I think that's why it goes on for three minutes. I do think you could have had them say, let's go play this game and then go to commercial break and then show them cleaning up and sweaty and having had a really great time. You could have done that. Mm-hmm. But I do think there was some value in, in showing the aspects of the game of how hard it was. And so I, I know what you're saying about like, oh my God, this is going on for so long. But I also thought this is here for a reason. I could, I could kind of connect to it in a way. Hmm. So they play this game. They talk about basically all the conversation is about like eat this food and take this trinket and, and play this game with us. You're, you could be one of us when finally the other shoe drops and it turns out that Zabral is looking for an opportunity to get Archer's assistance to effectively, again, the word terrorist has been used in this in the synopsis in quotes. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And Zabral sees himself as a freedom fighter. He is with his community. They work in cells and they are conducting attacks against their government in an attempt to get fair treatment that they have not been getting. And he is looking for weapons, possibly training, planning, strategic support. He's looking Mm -hmm. for anything he can get from who he has considered a great warrior. This then ties back, and I think this episode does something. I wish Enterprise had done more of it. It harkens back to previous stories because when they say how... Do you, where have you gotten this idea that we are in any way this kind of group that can help you fight back against a government like this? It turns out it's because of the Suliban that Archer had helped free from the internment camp. Yeah, so I'm again, with you on this. A nice, a nice link back, a nice link back to an earlier episode. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. The, the tie back was my favorite part of this episode. It was like nice, they're kind of bringing that thread back and building on it even further. And I love the descriptions of when they're asking, like later on the episode, they talk about like what they were told by the Suliban. Yes. <laughs> and it's like the story has just like ballooned and it makes it sound like Archer came in there with a thousand men and like took on entire armies. And it's like over the top storytelling that it's just yes. kind of blossomed into becoming this epic tale when it really was not an epic tale. It was just a small breakout from a small <laughs> prison facility. So 
That seems I, I to love be that aspect of it. It seems to be a running theme of some of the episodes. You can kind of tie it back to the Ferengi yeah. episode where nobody knows who the humans are yet. The humans don't know who the various players in their quadrant of space are yet. Some things are getting blown out of proportion. Do humans really, you know, there's the episode with the Vulcans. Do humans mate the way we've heard? Do humans consume things the way that we've heard they consume things? There's this ongoing sort of mythology is a part of the world. And we've talked about going back to the beginning of our rewatch of these episodes, there was a kind of campfire aspect to some of the storytelling almost like we're sitting around a campfire telling stories that have been handed down for generations Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being told straight up Trek. And I think that aspect is at play here where there's a great scene with Reed when he is arguing back against the idea that they did anything fantastic against the Suliban. He's like, mm-hmm. we weren't up against an army. We were up against prison guards. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't thousands of Suliban. It was a few hundred. It was a scale that was manageable for one ship to help. Mm-hmm. This was not, we didn't free a planet. And we certainly didn't free a massive part of the population of a planet that is being held down by its own government. And this is another episode where conversations with T'Pol where she reveals the Vulcans had a certain set of directives in place that would guide first contact situations because Sato asked her point blank, why did the Vulcans land in Montana? Why did they go there? And it's a very interesting conversation. This of course is taking place after the storytelling in first contact where we see the development of the first warp engine by Cochrane, and after its flight and safe landing back in Montana, the Vulcan ship lands there to meet these humans who have just demonstrated they have warp technology. As Sato says in this episode, you landed in the United States, it could have destabilized relationships with all of the other countries as a result of an alien force landing friendly in Montana. Mm-hmm. Why did you go there? What was, how was that decision reached? And T'Pol effectively says, without saying it in these words, there is a prime directive that the Vulcans have. Yep. And this episode is once again dancing along that as a, as a major plot element. There is no directive in place to keep Archer from offering support, providing support to these people but he's clearly disturbed by the idea of it, Mm -hmm. of getting enmeshed in what is very clearly an internal affair of this planet. And Matt, do you want to talk about how that matches up with international diplomacy that we would see in this era in 2002 as the world was looking at Israel and the Palestine Mm -hmm. issue And that's continuing to this day. I'm not asking you to litigate that (laughs) issue at all. But just to say, like, what did you think about how this story was saying, here's a group of people who feel unfairly treated and pushed into a corner? 
Well, the whole setup, I mentioned how it was so on the nose, it kind of set me off. But in the middle of the episode, I thought it was a little more nuanced. I thought it was a little more interesting because they're dealing, the Enterprise is dealing with the main government saying, your people are with terrorists right now. And then you're seeing the captain with these terrorists that are actually just seem like good people and they feel like they've been wronged. So it does a good job of showing you both sides of the issue and how both sides probably have valid concerns um, and how taking sides can totally destabilize the, the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Much like the United States and how we've handled most of our relations in the Middle East and destabilizing, helping to destabilize the region. Uh, it, it, once again, it's, it's a little on the nose, but I thought it was interesting the way they handled it. And I don't want to jump ahead into the episode, but the whole issue of like, here's Zabral being cast as this terrorist by the main government. The episode never, ever shows the results of what happens, which I thought was interesting. So Zabral yeah. is never, never recast in the episode. Was, oh, he is a terrorist or, or he's not a terrorist. It, that is almost unimportant because as you, you mentioned, it all comes back to the human's point of view of, oh man, we just stepped into a quagmire here and yeah. we didn't mean to um, because they seem like nice people and these people are probably fine people, but man, we don't want to get enmeshed in this this insanity. So I thought that was very interesting that they never did recast what Zabral actually is. Right. The allegations are made and they never resolve it. I also think that at this point in the episode, there's the the conversations where Zabral is basically saying, look, we we want these we want these weapons. We want things from the Enterprise. We, we need your help and we've got your people. And it turns south for everybody once mm -hmm. the government gets involved and says to the Enterprise, like, you are unwelcome here. You need to leave. They block off communication. And then aboard the, the Enterprise, they're operating in the dark. And on the ground, the encampment where the captain and trip have been visiting comes under attack by the government forces mm -hmm. and it breaks down into Archer and trip being forced out of a bunker and literally running into the desert. And the episode takes a very interesting turn at that point where it becomes about the survival aspect mm -hmm. and it becomes about the things that they've referred to in the past where it's, they refer to it in Celsius, I believe, just as a rough guess. I think that it, they were talking about it being roughly like 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so it's it's an extremely hot, they make the joke about it being a dry heat, but mm -hmm. they are playing survival in the desert. They have a, from their shuttlecraft, they do not take off because they've been warned. Immediately upon taking off, their engine signatures would be able to be targeted and they would be blown out of the sky. So they don't try and take off, but they do grab survival packs before they leave. I found it very interesting. Not one hat in the survival pack. So Two there, small <laughs> bottles of water in the survival pack. No sunscreen in the survival pack. <laughs> it's, funny, it's funny you bring up the sunscreen because I actually wrote a note. Two white guys in the desert without sunscreen was a note I wrote to myself because the entire time they're trudging across the desert, I'm like, how is there like no like extra shirt they could drape over their heads or like there was nothing. It was like, let's just grab nothing. these two jugs of water and get the heck out of here. It was like, yeah. no, th there could have been more stuff that they could have taken impromptu things of creating kind of some kind of some protection garb. It's like the fact that they didn't even do that was a little, a little bizarre. 
Yeah. <laughs> Especially after having just viewed the movie Dune. And I also had a note in my comments. <laughs> Dune, this is not, is yes. all I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> they refer to survival training that they had done in the past in which they had been in the Australian outback living on recycled water. So they actually refer to a still suit sort of idea. Yep. And yet there's nothing like that as far as survival gear inside nope. the shuttlecraft. None. It struck me as, you know, even if all you do is recycle your your breath, like mm -hmm. even if all you're doing is wearing a mask to catch your breath, you're going to catch a certain amount of condensation out of your breath that then could be trapped as water that you could consume. It might just mm -hmm. be a couple of ounces over a period of a day, but at least you're capturing that much. They don't even have that here. They are mm -hmm. literally just like, oh, grab a jug, and it doesn't even look like it would. Like I've seen small bottles of Poland Spring that looked like they contained more water than these, these <laughs> yes. water jugs that they had in, in the yes. shuttlecraft. So they head yep. off into the desert, and now it's about survival. It's about continuing to move in an environment which is getting extremely hot. They do have enough, I think, in the conversation, the dialogue, to demonstrate that these two men know what they're supposed to be doing. But they're in circumstances that are beyond their control. Archer says, we should be moving at night, but we don't have a choice here. We have to find shelter. Reed is right off the bat experiencing heat exhaustion. I think it's would have benefited them to have something in the story where post-game they had referred to, I don't feel like I can drink enough water. I feel like I'm dehydrated in a, in a way that I'm having trouble consuming enough water so that when they have to flee into the desert, we already know they're already in a precipitate, bad, they're, bad they're in a bad yeah. situation to begin with. Because Tripp's descent into literally delirium at one point seems rather abrupt and... It's clearly, it has to happen. One of them has to end up in a situation where they're in this level of, of danger uh, for this kind of story to have the impact that it's going to. But mm -hmm. I wish there had been a little bit more of a, of a setup to let us know why it's happened so quickly. Because they really just kind of head into the desert and then the first conversation they're having when they're on the run is, I think I'm dying. So they flee across the desert and Archer makes a, a point of jabbing at Trip for your survival training didn't work completely if you don't remember that when you're coming into an unknown area, you're supposed to scout it out. Archer had spotted as they were flying in what looked like might be abandoned buildings on the fringe of the area where they were landing. So that's where they're headed they do manage to get there. I think it's interesting that he referred to it as east and west. They're on an alien planet. <laughs> well, I, can, like, I excuse, I like, excuse that because it's yeah. like just from a human's point of view, it's like, well, east is to the right and west is to the left. And right. So he's referring to it in that sense, but it was a little weird. It's like, how do you, how do you know that was east on this planet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would have, you know, like I would have appreciated if it had been a little bit more like we have to head sunward. Like, like that would have, yeah, like, or if I've got a, a, th a reading on this device that lets me know that it's 180 degrees that direction, anything like that, just calling it out east made me kind of say it like, hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they Sean, head chin east. Chin tattoos. Yes, chin tattoos. Chin tattoos. <laughs> they head east. 
They do find the buildings. Once they get there, they find effectively nothing other than the buildings. So at least they have shade, but they find uh, a pan. I think it's interesting that there's clearly a jerry-rigged water collection. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice touch. And he determines, Archer quickly determines the water is fetid. So he's like, we can't drink that. A little bit later, he has devised a, he's built a fire, he's ignited it with his phaser, and he jokingly says, I figured out a new use for the stun setting on the phasers. There's a, I immediately flash back to an episode of the original series in which you see Sulu as the lead member of an away team that is surviving a sub-zero temperatures on a planet at night and they are heating rocks with their phasers. Yeah. Which was, when I was a kid, was one of my favorite images of the show when Sulu is heating up those rocks to keep them warm and then here is Archer igniting some sticks with his his, uh, stun setting on his phaser. I thought it was a nice callback. Well, this, this scene is actually my favorite scene in the entire show. And I found a little bit of information that I was, thought was fascinating. This scene where he's trying to keep Trip awake and he's made the water and he's asking Trip, what would you want to eat? And he's forcing him to kind of just say, I want a steak. I want broccoli and mashed potatoes, yeah. the whole thing. That scene is the longest single take of any Star Trek show ever. Oh. It was three minutes and 41 seconds without any cuts. Hmm. And I, part of the reason I, when I saw that, I was like, that must be why I like that scene so much. Because from a filmmaking point of view, I love long, just long takes because it allows the actors to set the pacing and it feels very organic because there aren't these artificial cuts that are making things feel like it's flowing faster. Yeah. And I was watching that scene. I was like, this is like really engaging because it's like, I'm really worried about Trip. And it's like, yeah. I'm getting really engaged into it because it was just the two actors just acting. And so yeah. it's like when I found it was a three minute, 41 second scene without any cuts, I was like, that's, a, that's actually a really long scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. The scene literally explodes into an ending, which is a climactic flee for their life when a government mortar patrol determines that there are people in that building and st- starts bombarding it. And Archer is aware of what's happening. Trip is out of his head with the dehydration mm-hmm. and heat exhaustion. And Archer manages to get Trip out of the building just before it's literally blown apart. And they are running across the desert. And the attack draws the attention of the shuttle pod from the Enterprise. They've managed, with Zabral's help, to slip back into the atmosphere in one of their shuttlecraft and have been searching the desert for their people and reed makes the point of saying it would be much easier if we could fly higher but sabral is like if you go any higher they're going to spot you so you have to stay low so they've been combing the desert very inefficiently until these explosions take place and when the shuttlecraft arrives Tapal is quickly able to identify two human signatures in the desert fleeing and read, I think in a, in a nice little maneuver quickly dispatches using the weapons on the shuttlecraft blows up the mortar patrol. You can only imagine the diplomatic problems that that's going to create for Starfleet if they ever try and come back to this planet again. Yeah. But they managed to come down and find Archer and Trip in a moment that I, I 
really liked the way this was shot, an above shot of the two of them scrambling through the desert and Archer turning around with his phaser raised and then a reverse shot quickly showing barely identifiable against the night sky, the shape of the shuttle pod coming in for a landing and Archer in that moment identifying, like recognizing like, Oh, that's mine. Mm -hmm. They get on board the shuttle craft. There is a nice unspoken hesitation when Zabral puts his hand out to help Archer aboard and Archer for a split second, doesn't want to take the man's hand and then does. And as you said, it doesn't identify him as a terrorist or not a terrorist. It leaves all of these questions hanging in the air between them. They're returned to the Enterprise. Zabral goes back to his planet. There is no help being offered by the Enterprise. They are not going to be given the weapons or the training or the strategic support they were hoping for. Archer is not the savior that they had heard of. But it ends with Archer and Paul having a conversation in which Archer says, we couldn't give them help. I wasn't going to give them help, but I can't help but feel like they were the side worth fighting for. Yeah. So a very telling moment about what seeing somebody and walking a bit in their shoes, eating in their home, playing their games, spending time with them and their family and identifying with them as people prior to passing judgment. And exactly. A very interesting and very Trek ending to the episode. I think that for me, the bumps along the way, I completely <clears throat> agree with you. And like, there is a point where tattoos on your chin are not enough. Um, but I think that some of the the missteps in this episode, I still ended the episode feeling like, okay, this was one that kind of hit on all the Trek notes that you would expect, where there have been episodes 10 earlier in this season where I was left feeling like this didn't feel like they knew who these characters were and they didn't yeah. know where they were supposed to go with it. This one I felt like, okay, this they they have a really strong sense of not only the Trek message in place, the kind of idealism of if we can only walk a mile in somebody's shoes, perhaps we won't judge them too harshly. And also a really strong sense of T'Pol has a moment and Trip and Archer have moments where their personalities are clearly defined. They know yes. who they are as characters now. Even yep. Reed, who has just a few lines is very read in this. It's like starting to get that flavor of like, I know who these people are and they know who these people are. And that's very yeah. refreshing. Yeah. The, the whole episode for me ended in a far better place than when it began. So like it set me off in the beginning and really kind of colored my impression of the entire episode, but the ending, the way they wrap things up, I thought it was very strong. And I did like that very Trek message that was delivered by the end of the episode. So, I got to give them props for that. I still don't think this was, in my opinion, a great episode. I thought it was kind of average at best because of how uneven it was for me and how mm. on the nose it was for what it was trying to represent from what was happening in the world at the time. Um, they could have been more subtle. They could have been more uh, clever about it. Um, they could have put a little more effort into the aliens <laughs> instead of just giving them chin tattoos. 
there's a whole bunch of stuff that they could have probably done better, but on a whole, from a storytelling point of view, I thought by the end, they really did pull, pull together. So I'm curious to know from our listeners, do you think that this did enough to pull it out of some rough beginnings or do you feel like it just fell short of the mark? For me, this landed firmly in a, yeah, this is Trek. Uh, for Matt, it sounds like it just barely mm-hmm. cut, cut that line. Uh, but what about you? Do you think it did enough or do you think it left you wanting more? Let us know. Next time, we're going to be talking about the episode Two Days and Two Nights. Matt, do you have any predictions about what this episode will be about? I have a feeling we're going to see time over two days and maybe two nights. Mm. It's a wild a guess, though. teaser be wrong. for everybody. This upcoming episode has a director that we all know. Yeah. That's right. Not going to say who. It's Michael Dorn. Lieutenant so Wolf. Please sure to tune in for that one. Before we sign off, Matt, do you have anything you want to remind listeners about? Uh, just to check out my Undecided with Matt Farrell YouTube channel, I've got some really interesting videos coming up. Uh, the time this episode comes out, uh, my most recent episode should be on a uh, recent breakthrough on nuclear fusion, where I got to talk to somebody from MIT about uh, the breakthrough that they had. It's really cool, and it kind of addresses the whole fusion is always 30 years away joke that is said often about fusion. Um, it looks like it's no longer just going to be 30 years away. It's going to happen sooner than we probably think. That's very cool. And it's also an indication that my brother is going to build a nuclear reactor in his garage. (laughs) As for me, I only have a website. It's seanferrell.com. It's got information about my books. You can take a look at that. You can find my books at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, as I'm always suggesting, go to your local small bookstore and see if you can get them there. You should be able to because they are available pretty much everywhere. Another reminder, please visit trekintime.show. You can directly support the podcast. You can also support us by subscribing and by sharing us with your friends. If you're on YouTube, you can go to the comment section directly below the video. And if you're listening to us through your favorite podcast provider, you can find the contact information in the podcast notes. When you find those notes or that comment section, please be sure to reach out. Let us know what you think. Offer us corrections. We hate it when we refer to the impulse engines when it's really the warp drive. And we can't tell one nacelle from another. Please remember to subscribe, to like the episode, to share it widely with your friends and strangers, and to come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you later.